Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of hosting Neil Bawa again. Uh, for those uh, who, uh, who are not aware, Neil Bawa is, a, uh, is favorably known as Mad Scientist. Uh, he is with Grow Capitus, uh, which is their, uh, you know, uh, the syndication company and also the multifamily uh, university, multifamily U, uh, which is their education company. So uh, Neil is a, a expert in data. He is speaker and a keynote uh, a speaker at many conferences, and he has regular boot camps, uh, the number of uh, webinars and different, uh, uh, you know, podcasts that Neil is on. There are literally thousands and thousands of people who listen to his uh, insights uh, on all different platforms uh, pretty much on a regular basis. So welcome to the show, Neil. I appreciate your time today. Thanks uh, for having me back on the show, Sakar. Very excited to be here again. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's 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 dive right in, Neil. Um, for listeners who may uh, who want to know more about Neil, I, I would uh, you know respectfully refer you to the prior episode where Neil has gone into intense uh, depth on all lots of different topics, uh, and we will link that uh, episode as well uh, in the show notes. Uh, so without wasting time, uh, Neil, I want to jump right into the show. Uh, if you can, Neil, uh, obviously everybody is talking about. COVID and the impact of this pandemic on real estate and things like that. Uh, I want to specifically ask you that, uh, what would you think uh, is a short-term and a near-term impact of uh, this pandemic on the, um, specifically on the commercial real estate outlook? Well, I think it depends on the type of commercial real estate. So sure. there, mm. there's the spectrum of very small amount of short-term impact where you see multifamily and industrial and then you move to others such as student housing, which have a very strong short-term impact, but actually long-term benefits. Mm -hmm. As universities decide to keep their dorms at 50%, fall enrollment for, uh, for student housing is very strong. But mm -hmm. obviously two or three months ago, they were not feeling good about it. Sure. Um, and then senior housing has, a, has both a short-term and a long-term impact. If your you know, mom or, or grandma was in one of these big box senior housing facilities, then you'd probably bring her home at this point in time because these places with a lot of them are the ventilation is pretty poor, which means that the virus travels there through uh, small droplets. Sure. And so mm -hmm. essentially, if you're sitting under a vent there's, you know, and, and there's 10 people sick there, you are pretty much guaranteed to get the virus in a, within a, a few days. Sure. Mm -hmm. so, um, so a lot of people are concerned about that. And that is really hurting senior housing, both in the short term and the long term. But even within senior housing, what I'm seeing is that uh, assets that have a small number of people, like people that have converted single family homes and, and have five or 10 customers are doing quite well. Sure. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons they're doing well is people are moving from big box places that had 200 seniors to these smaller places to reduce the risk. So, mm -hmm. so their occupancy is held up well. If you're a big box guy and you have a 200, 300 unit senior housing project, you're, you're in trouble right now, both from mm -hmm. a lending perspective, if you're building new, and from an occupancy perspective. But keep in mind, senior housing was already losing occupancy. You know, it's funny, Sakar, I talk with people and I say, what do you think about senior housing? And the answer is universal. Everybody gives me the same answer. And the answer is, oh yeah, senior housing is great. You know, baby boomers are getting older. So it's a phenomenal market, blah, blah, blah. Well, the question I have for people is, has anyone of those people actually gone to Google and typed in senior housing occupancy? Because sure. in the last five years, senior housing occupancy has dropped by 5%. Sure, sure. multifamily occupancy has gone up, uh, you know, multiple percent in the last five years. Sure. So what's yeah. happened is, yes, it's a great space, but it's a space where big box, you know, uh, you know, developers are bringing in large inventory. Sure. Mm -hmm. 
mid-level people that are rehabbing older facilities and making them newer, which means that they're more expensive, the rents are higher. And then you've got people at the lower level that are converting single-family homes into five or 10, you know, big single-family homes into, into 10-room, you know, assets. And so there's a lot of pressure on supply. And so their occupancies dropped from above 92% to below 88% pre-COVID. Sure. And I expect that to continue to drop. So that's a more significant impact. And then, you know, further along in the spectrum, you've got the two assets that, in my mind, are absolutely decimated, and that is all kinds of retail assets, including malls, sure. mm-hmm. and all kinds of hotels. And, and I, I do believe that hotels will bounce back a little bit quicker. We're already seeing a bit of a bounce back there. Mm-hmm. I think retail is about to see the COVID apocalypse, and we've only begun to see the start of that. So you saw, you know... Pier One, you've seen Neymar Marcus, you've seen a number of other major sure. retailers fall. Mm-hmm. JC Penney's already fallen, J. Crew, and so you. This is just the beginning. I mean, sure. there's going to be a army of of you know corpses littered along the the retail highway in the next 12 months, and I don't I don't even think it ends in 12 months. One of the things is that most people have known this that that are in that retail space that retail was already overbuilt in the United States pre-COVID. Sure. We mm-hmm. have the highest retail per capita of any industrialized nation in the country, in the world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the big reason for that is every time we build new multifamily, we tend to build a lot of retail. Well, what sure. about the existing retail, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. So, so what's happening is that we, we already had overbuilt retail and now we, we're just at the point where with, with you know, people refusing to basically go back into stores and, and substituting e-commerce. I mean, look mm-hmm. at me, I, I've bought... I just realized with complete shock today that I've bought about 300 items from Amazon in the last 12 months, right? That's kind of insane, right? Sure, I mean, that's sure. just like four, five, six items a day. And, you know, there's people around the house with phones just ordering their stuff. Sure. And it's any, any and every kind of, uh, you know, product. Sure. Um, so, you know, with that substitution, I, don't, I just don't see retail coming back. But, and, and by the way, you know, so I'm very bearish on retail. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, I'm very bear- bullish on industrial. Sure. And you're already seeing that in the, in, in the fact that, you know, industrial hasn't seen a lot of delinquencies. They haven't seen, you know, debt issues in the last three or four months because a lot of that retail slack has to be picked up by industrial because if people are basically shipping out of warehouses, well, where are the warehouses? We, we sure. never built enough warehouses for everyone to be on Amazon and DoorDash and all of these sorts of things. Sure, sure. But really on that spectrum, what we've seen so far is multifamily industrial doing really well, retail hotels doing poorly, and seniors and student, you know, sort of being kind of in the middle. Uh, I do think that there's risks, strong risks ahead for multifamily because one of the multifamily was a much greater beneficiary of the supplementary unemployment, mm-hmm. as well as the $1,200 that they distributed to people. Sure. So mm-hmm. it was a lot of that money went to multifamily. It didn't go to retail, didn't go to student housing, didn't go to industrial. It went directly to, right. to multifamily. Absolutely. And I'm curious to see what happens at the end of July, the unemployment benefits lapse, and then PPP is pretty much done at this point in time. So sure. employers are not going to have that boost anymore. And then, um, you know, the, the 1200 bucks is pretty much spent at this point in time. Absolutely. The question is, you know, people, multifamily folks are kind of patting themselves on the back. And I'm saying, wait, 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 wait. This, you're not at the starting point yet. So the, 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 the key is that people understand that this is a long race. It's a marathon. And at best, we can say that we are at the starting point mm-hmm. because we have, and, and I'm not criticizing it at all, by the way, we have a fake economy. It is based on PPP and EIDL and supplementary unemployment mm-hmm. and the $1,200 that we gave out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the $4 trillion that the Fed pumped into the economy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and the $2 trillion that, that you know, the, the CARES Act pumped into the economy. That's fake. Sure. But it's short term, right? So it, it's a short term impact. And that it, a lot of that impact will be gone by the end of August. So the question is, how much of the real economy comes back in, in September? It is. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I echo your sentiments, Neil. And some of the things I'm starting to see within our portfolio as well is that, um, you know, tenants who were perhaps delinquent or were affected uh, by the pandemic of sorts, they are picking up overnight and leaving the apartments. 
and that that is i mean i have networked with several uh, you know investors and things and i'm i'm seeing that trend that people are saying hey you know what uh, to heck with it let's let's move on and that's that is coming that i mean the courts are shut down and, and one of the things i think we haven't yet i think given given much much seriousness is that uh, the correlation uh, of you know let's say the jobs have been lost we we just talked about that uh, oh all these retails uh, stores are shut down all of the uh, you know the malls are going empty and things like that i mean well the the impact is that there are so many people who are already working there i mean they have absolutely lost their jobs you know so that 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 sort of the those are all the dominoes i think that are still going to come in my opinion and and this is obviously uh, again this is my personal feeling here is that there is obviously no shape or form of v shape recovery that we keep sometimes hearing about uh, you know i think the real question now is that the u shape recovery or that plateau the only uh, i think option is that how long that u is going to expand whether are we talking like q3 q4 or that's going to prolong into uh, you know, sort of Q1, Q2 into well into 2021. Uh, what would you say to all of this, Neil? So the federal def the the definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Sure. So mm -hmm. looks like Q1 was negative growth. Looks like you know Q2 is negative growth. So now we have a you know um, a a proper recession that we're in. Sure. In my mind, Q3 is definitely looking like it's going to be negative growth. I, I can't imagine how it's going to be positive. Sure. But by Q4, I think that growth is going to become positive by virtue of it having been so negative that by comparison, sure. it looks like it looks better, right? Sure. It's sure. like sure. You're, you're, you're an ugly pig, but all the other pigs are uglier, right? The previous sure. quarters are uglier. So I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. comes out of recession in Q4. Mm -hmm. but it is going to feel like a recession sure. to mm -hmm. the average man in Q4, in Q1, in Q2. I, I do think that by Q3, that is not the case. I think that the economy comes out of this very strong because one of the key things that people have to understand is this. We just borrowed $4 trillion of our children's money, sure. right? Mm -hmm. And we plugged it into the economy to save ourselves, okay? Mm -hmm. Your generation, my generation, we stole that from our children it sure. is a very large amount of money. Keep in mind, we only injected $1 trillion into the economy in 2008. Mm -hmm. and, and, and back in 2008, the US was the major injector because we caused the 2008 recession and, and you know, we had that financial collapse sure. here. Mm -hmm. And so we were the one that were most aggressive. Today, mm -hmm. we are not the most aggressive. There are other countries, uh, the Eurozone, Japan, China, these are very aggressive at this point in time. So the total amount of money injected into the world economy is absolutely staggering. It's in, in my mind, it could be even north of $10 trillion. All of that is money and growth stolen from the future. Sure, but sure. What it's going to do is it's going to have an impact, mm -hmm. but generally monetary and fiscal policy take a year. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but I can tell you the impact of that $10 trillion is quite significant. It's going to create a lot of growth. I don't want to call it fake growth. I want to call it short-term growth. But mm -hmm. again, you're pulling growth forward from, pre from future years, which means the slowdown in the future is going to be worse. Mm -hmm. But you are doing that, right? So, so in my mind, I, I can't imagine that Q3 of next year is going to look very weak. It's going to look pretty strong. Right. Sure, sure. Because there's so much money looking for yield and money that's looking for yield always does one thing. It drives up asset prices, whether that's real estate or stocks or Bitcoin doesn't really matter. Sure. There, there is such an insanely large amount of money injected. And keep in mind, we are talking about a, a new stimulus bill. Sure. The president is actually talking specifics, which means that they must have talked to the Democrats. Right. Because you don't talk specifics until the Republicans talk with the Democrats. Sure, so sure. clearly at this point, there's another stimulus bill coming. We don't quite know what it is. Mm -hmm. So this four trillion dollar number, which already was astonishingly large, sure. 10 mm -hmm. trillion worldwide is about to get bigger. Sure. So I mm -hmm. think to the common man, Q3, Q4, Q1, Q2, one, the ne next entire year feel very much like a recession. But the economy may not be in a recession much longer. And, and, and Q4 may be the last quarter. In fact, it's even possible that Q3 may be the last quarter mm -hmm. formally of the recession. But we all remember that 
in 2009, the you know, first quarter of the economy came out of a recession. Well, it felt like a recession for another couple of years, right? right it was right, right. nasty. So, so I think there's a lot up in the air. Mm-hmm. The big question in my mind is, are there any big dominoes that are going to fall? Is corporate debt going to basically crash and burn the way that real estate did in 2008? Mm-hmm. Is, uh, is it going to be municipalities? Mm-hmm. Uh, are states going to go bankrupt? Are, are, munis- you know, are, are cities going to go bankrupt? Those are all X factors because we are all so busy with COVID and looking at the daily infection rate that we've forgotten that there's no state in the union right now breaking even and they don't even care. Right now they have to spend money mm-hmm. to protect their citizens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in the end, states are not like the feds. They cannot print money, Right. So Absolutely. no state in the union can print money. All they can do is they can borrow money. And yes, mm-hmm. borrowing money right now is cheap, but keep in mind, it's going to add up. If you borrow $100 billion as a state, now you have a huge multi-billion dollar you know, bill to pay each year just on your interest. You know. sure. mm-hmm. And so that can drive states that are weaker insolvent. I'm, I'm thinking New Jersey. I'm thinking Illinois. Chicago. I'm thinking yep. Kentucky. Yep. Yep. Um, I mean, these are states that were very weak already to begin with. I mean, and, and they just needed one more domino to fall and boy, what a huge domino. Uh, I couldn't agree more, couldn't agree more. And, uh, and the parallels that you drove to 2008, uh, you know, recession, uh, you know, ring very true, uh, Neil, that we clearly remember, uh, if we all recall, that through the 2008, 2009, I think all the asset prices, I mean, real estate was still cheap till I think 12, 13, or even 14 for that matter. There were tremendous foreclosures and things like that. And that's where I sometimes get, uh, if worried is not the right word, perhaps fearful about, you know, how deep this wound has gone in. And you rightfully said that, yes, we may be coming back in, let's say, the Q4 or the Q1 next year, but it will feel like recession. And, you know, it's, I mean, human mind is very interesting that, uh, you know, we have such a short memory that we say that, oh, the stock market just fell off 800 points, but then suddenly you go past two days. Oh, we've been going up by 50, 60 points every day. I mean, we must be doing good. For, and we, we quickly forget that, oh, geez, we went in a off of a cliff uh, uh, so deep that we are still inching our way back up. So uh, to recap, what, what I'm, I think, sensing, Neil, is that right now, I think we are so deep in the hole that it could be perhaps uh, several years th- that we feel that the pain of this and all the destabilization that has happened, w- w- would, you, would you think uh, along those lines? I would, uh, and 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 keep. I want to. I want to point out something to your viewers. I like to ask this trivia question, Sakar. So I'm gonna. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna. You know, pick on you. Sure. So you know, we had a recession in 2008 in real estate. When do you think real estate bottomed out? What's your guess? Uh, I mean. Uh, Again, it's all market specific, uh, Neil. Right. 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 Uh, right, right. Where, where... As an as an overall number, what would you guess? I would think 2009 was perhaps mm-hmm. where it bottomed out, but again, it was still languishing, and that languishing is where I think I get worried. Is that you could bottom out, but how quickly are you coming back up, or are you exactly. really? It can back scrape the along the bottom for a long time, right? That, that's so the, the, yep. the technical answer to that question, and, and honestly, 2009 is the, the correct answer. But the technical oh, thank you. I question. <laughs> no, no, you 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 did you technically lost. So the correct answer is real estate did not bottom out until Q1 of 2012. Oh, interesting. Which was almost three and a half years after the recession started with the with the banking crash. Sure. Now. During that time, as you can imagine, 2009, that was, there was that big crash, and then it was basically at the bottom, and then maybe went down a little bit there from there, you know, 1%, 2% as more foreclosures happened, and, and banks, you know, gave away assets for cheap. So it wasn't a huge decline, but you said it right. It scraped along the bottom, sure. right, going up a little, down a little, mostly in the downward direction for sure. three or four years. Mm-hmm. And do I expect that to happen with the stock market? No, I don't. I think most people... It, fundamentally, if there's one message that I can tell people, it, it's this. The real estate is about what is known as Main Street, right? Sure. Because when we are landlords, the renters that we have are people who cannot afford to buy a single family home. 
So they are in the, in the bottom 25% of Americans in terms of net worth, assets, income, right? Sure. That's mm -hmm. who we deal with in real estate, especially sure. if it's multifamily, right? Or, or sure. single family, you know, rental real estate. Sure. So we're dealing with Main Street. Mm -hmm. And Main Street now has nothing to do with the stock market because the top 5% of the people in the United States mm -hmm. own over 80% of the assets in the, in the stock market, right? That number is higher sure. than it has ever been. Sure. And it's showing that 5% of Americans own 80% of the assets. True. 5% mm -hmm. of the people control 100% of what is being said in the stock market, right? Sure. And what is sure. being done in the stock market. Sure. So they're controlling 100% of the emotion. So they're not 80%, they're 100%. Mm -hmm. So that 5% are focused on driving the value of their assets back up. Sure. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and that has nothing to do with Main Street. Sure. So in my mind, the stock market is completely detached from the US economy and is particularly detached from the real estate economy. So we could very easily have a situation where next year the stock market is, the Dow Jones is up another 5,000 points and we have landlords losing properties, losing rents, seeing delinquency. Not only could that happen, it is likely to happen. Sure, because, sure. And, mm -hmm. and also keep in mind that if I take six companies out of the stock market and those six companies, as you can imagine, you know, Apple and Google and, and, Facebook. and, you know, Netflix and mm -hmm. those, I take those six companies out. Mm -hmm. The stock market's had almost no growth in the last five years. Sure. So all of the growth are technology companies that are benefiting from COVID. Like, you know, obviously Amazon benefits, so does Netflix, mm -hmm. right? Apple's benefited because people, you know, sitting at home and buying, you know, buying Apple TVs and watching, you know, uh, their, their, their new channels. Sure. So it, all of these people actually stand to benefit. Microsoft has a huge benefit because they're a data center company. Mm -hmm. and, and all of a sudden people are like tripling or quadrupling their capacity. So think about it. So almost all the gains in the stock market are these six companies, mm -hmm. right? That's the, that's, you know, it take it out and, and, and almost all the gains are gone and all these are benefiting from a bad economy sure. and all these mm -hmm. are benefiting from the financialization of the economy and people mm -hmm. staying in house, right? right. So mm -hmm. isn't the stock market rise actually the exact opposite of what's happening on main street? It is. It, it, it absolutely is true, Neil. And that's where it gets very interesting is that the main street and the more importantly, the pain of the sort of the sector of people that you just pointed out, the renter class, that that is very real. I mean, the amount of businesses that have been shut down now and I, I would be I would not be surprised, I should say, is that all of these effects now start to become as the stimulus starts to wane off. I mean, we are kind of going into August to 2020 now. Uh, I mean, I, I think all the rosy sunglasses are about to come off is, uh, is what I, I am uh, sort of uh, thinking and uh, uh, back, back of my mind. But uh, anyways, I, I appreciate you giving your input on this, uh, Neil. Uh, now, moving on. Uh, and I guess, uh, again, it, it, it almost is very hard to move on from some of these uh, passionate topics, Neil. So, uh, you know, allow me to shift gears a bit here. Uh, in terms of, you know, uh, cities and markets that were doing well, whether we are talking about Research Triangle or the uh, Arizona or the Dallas or the Austins uh, of the world that we, uh, you know, always kind of the darling cities that we say, uh, what would you say to the... Uh, outlook of some of these uh, markets post pandemic uh, and, and you know I guess I'll let you uh, echo your thoughts there. Yeah it's rather mixed um, so as you know um, developers and syndicators look at a lot of different indicators we look at income levels we look at job growth we look at lots of different indicators sure but if there's one lesson I've learned from COVID it is that today there's an 800 pound gorilla and it's killing all the other gorillas and it's jobs Sure. Right. So normally there's balance in this process of doing math on, on which cities are going to do well. Today is just jobs. I mean, how many jobs has a particular city lost? And that seems to be driving everything else so that all of the other factors become less important. Today, for example, I don't want to go to a city with high population growth. I just want to go to a city that has lost the smallest number of those jobs. Mm -hmm. So when I'm looking at that list, 
there's cities in there that you might not think of. You know, the first two at the top that have lost the least amount of jobs are both cities in Nebraska. I've mentioned Omaha, Nebraska several times earlier this year as, as an interesting area. They're mm -hmm. at 6.5% unemployment rate as of May, right? Keep in mind, other cities are four times as high as that. Absolutely. So I think Omaha and Lincoln are great places to look at. And then in the top 10, there are five cities in Arizona. There's Gilbert, there's Mesa, there's Chandler, there's Peoria, there's Tucson. These are all in the top 10 in terms of lowest unemployment as of May. And what's the reason? Arizona decided to take the very difficult path of not shutting down. Sure. Now, of course, today, and we are on you know, July 9th here, we are seeing the consequences of that. Sure. So you know, Arizona has the worst outbreak of COVID in the US. Mm -hmm. But oddly enough, I mean, I'm going to say something truly heartless, right? And this is all me playing, you know, uh, backseat quarterback looking at the past, right? Sure. I, I wouldn't have said any of these things three months ago. Mm -hmm. Arizona may have done the right thing because today we know how to fight this pandemic without shutting down. In March, we did not. In sure. March, every country in the world only had one option with the exception of Sweden, Everyone shut down. That's the only way they knew to fight it. Sure. Today we know more. We know how to fight it more. We also have lowered our death rate, mm -hmm. which means that we can actually manage to muddle along with doing short-term shutdowns in strategic parts of the state as the infections blow up. Mm -hmm. And those will happen in Phoenix. I mean, there's going to be parts of Phoenix that are going to get shut down the next couple mm -hmm. of weeks. There's going to be parts of uh, Maricopa County that'll get shut down, but it, they'll be shorter. Mm -hmm. it, the city will bounce back quicker because mm -hmm. we've learned a lot, sure. right? Mm -hmm. and, and when they start mandating masks, which is inevitable at this point, it's going to happen. Sure. Um, that will help as well. So bottom line is by not shutting down mm -hmm. Arizona in the history books, maybe not today, but five years from now, they'll be like, oh, you know what? That governor was smart. He didn't shut down. Because today, you know, Mesa's unemployment rate is 8%. Las Vegas is at 28 Sure, sure. Right. So I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done that, by the way, I would have shut down because the loss of human life is tremendous. But I'm commenting on what politicians do and I'm not a politician. So I think I, I can say that. So I think you have to look at that like a city that you're invested in, Sakar, is actually doing done fairly well. The Baltimore is at 11 percent. Some of it is because it had jobs associated with with, um, you know, government because of D.C. Sure. And so mm -hmm. not too bad. I think that you're in a good place. I'm worried about the places that are not in the middle of that list. So mm -hmm. the ones that I'm worried about, and you know, for the last four or five years, I've been talking about Detroit being the weakest economy. Obviously, it's, it's got the highest unemployment rate sure. at this point in time. Detroit is at 39.2% as of the end of May. Orlando is at 23%. Uh, Vegas is at 27, 28%. Honolulu is at 20%. So a lot of places that were dependent on that kind of Mm -hmm. uh, income uh, or were really weak are the mm -hmm. ones that we're going to see suffering. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I mean, uh, a, a lot of the great cities before are still doing phenomenally well, right? That cluster that I talk about in, uh, in Utah, mm -hmm. all the way from Salt Lake to Provo, low unemployment, sure. right? We talk about, um, you know, we talk about the Phoenix cluster, the Tucson cluster, all low unemployment. So a lot of those are doing really, really well. DC is obviously doing phenomenally well because sure. government jobs. So, so I think that's a, that's a great place. But there's also some surprising places that I would not have guessed that are doing well. You know, as you know, syndicators have a favorite called Huntsville, Alabama. <laughs> it's at 8.8%. Sure. I would have guessed it would be at 16% today. So Clearly, Mia Kalpa was absolutely wrong on that one. So Huntsville's doing well. So there's, there's a few of those that people were saying are going to do well that continue to do well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Boise, Idaho, obviously, Nampa, these are doing phenomenally well with, with low unemployment. Colorado, it continues to do well. Colorado Springs, Denver have uh, very low unemployment. So mm -hmm. these are really great places. So not much has changed, mm -hmm. right? Except the weak places like Detroit, and the, and the tourism places like Orlando, um, you know, Miami and, and, um, and Las Vegas are getting hit. Mm -hmm. but otherwise, it, may, it makes sense to actually focus on the, on the job numbers. I mean, right now we're looking at the Wallet Hub list, which has about 200, 300 cities, and we're just looking fixated on that. Mm -hmm. And we're saying, I don't care if the city is growing at 5x. If it's at 20% unemployment, stop every project there and walk away. We'll come mm -hmm. back a year later to see where it is. 
I see. Uh, now, related question there, Neil, is that um, obviously you're looking at the job uh, loss rates and things like that. But how do you sort of, uh, you know, amend these metrics with respect to, uh, you know, just the quantum or the number of uh, jobs that are present, like, you know, the cities that you uh, prior mentioned, uh, Omaha, uh, Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska, right? Those would be the cities that you would think that, uh, I mean, are they pre, uh, previously thriving? And, and I compare and contrast that question by saying that, uh, you know, let's say the Dallas, the Austin, the Charlotte, the Raleigh, and things like that. These are, you know, sort of uh, divorced, superstar cities, uh, superstar cities, low cap rates and things like that. There's just so much uh, going on right now that, uh, you know, the halo of these uh, metros trickle over, you know, 30, 50 miles into, you know, tertiary uh, or secondary markets in there. But uh, where I'm going with this question also, Neil, is that the initial, uh, you know, the uh, vibrancy of the market and hence, uh, uh, you know, and, and we can, I, I guess, uh, say the same similar uh, analogy for population loss as well. Like, you know, it's much different than, uh, you know, let's say if you are a city of 70,000 people and you lost, let's say 5%, and then, well, I mean, you lost a certain percentage, but then if you if we take a much bigger city of you know 150,000 and you lost, let's say, uh, you know maybe perhaps 10,000 people, that's a much smaller loss. So where I'm going with this? True, question, true. So so we're not looking at numbers of people. We're mm -hmm. only looking at percentages. In my sure. mind, a city of 10 million people that loses 15% jobs. Mm -hmm. is no different from a city of 100,000 that loses 15% jobs. Mm -hmm. In both cases, 15% of the renter pool, right? Because I mean, the vast majority of the people that have lost jobs, we know this, Takara, they don't have homes, sure. right? Mm -hmm. So 80, 90% of the people that lost their jobs lived in, in renter you know, uh, places, maybe, maybe 80%, not, not 90. And, and, and as a result, you know, a certain percentage of that renter pool no longer has money, Mm -hmm. no longer is going to be able to pay pay you so i don't see i don't see the the big city versus small city difference i think it's all about percentages today mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. i think that there are some winners here and some losers here there's, a, there's there's some surprising winners i think the two nebraska cities are surprising winners because their jobs were not of the kind that were lost Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe Nebraska had logistics jobs. Logistics jobs are better. I mean, sure. we need more trucks right now because we're shipping everything to everybody. I mean, I was looking at trash cans on the street today. Today's trash day in, in my in my neighborhood. And every single one of them were overflowing with boxes from Amazon. Sure. sure. Right. So cities with logistics are doing really, really well. So there's some uh, unexpected winners. I think Dallas is going to do well. I think Raleigh is going to do well. They're all in that 12 to 13% unemployment rate. So Raleigh's there, Dallas is there, Austin's there. They're in that range, which is not too bad, to be honest. Mm -hmm. At this point, at this phase of this, this challenge, if you're mm -hmm. at 12, 13%, you're fine. You're not going to have an issue. So I don't see any bloodbaths in those major cities. And if I was in those cities, I wouldn't walk away from any of them. Um, maybe I might think of an exception or two over the next few minutes that I might, you know, you know, talk about, but I think that none of those has dropped. I mean, surprisingly, Houston's doing really well. I mean, it's at 14%, so that's higher than Dallas at 13. Sure. But you would have expected Houston to drop more, mm -hmm. right? Which sure. shows the overall strength of the Houston economy. I mean, a lot of people love to beat Houston because it's like Dallas is awesome, Houston's not. Right. But that's a nonsensical statement because Houston actually in many ways grows faster than Dallas does. And it is diverse. I mean, we, we used to say that, yes, Houston is oil-based, but, you know, the no, knowledge was, right, it changed in a big way, you know. So yeah. now m moving on, uh, Neil, you have a penchant for doing, uh, you know, new development and new construction deals. Mm -hmm. um, than you know a typical value add uh, you know of course you have done uh, you know the typical value add deals as well but could you maybe kind of synthesize your thinking about uh, you know how you approach looking at and why you think new development is advantageous with respect to uh, you know perhaps the typical plain vanilla value add deals well um so i'll give you pros and cons i don't want to just give you the pros because sure. i don't i don't think that's fair right mm -hmm. so the pro is obvious. What you're doing is you're getting Doc Brown's, you know, you know, time machine mm -hmm. and you're sitting in this time machine and you're basically transporting yourself 18 months into the future because you don't, you don't need tenants for the next 18 months. Sure. 
one of the upside of everything bad that's happening today is we are not going to rehab enough units. We're not going to build enough apartments. We're not going to build, build enough single family homes. Sure. We, we saw this in 2008. We didn't build anything in eight, nine, 10. We hardly built anything in 11 and 12. And we created a vacuum. And then everybody just benefited in the real estate industry for six or seven years. Everybody thought they were gods. And it was basically a, a supply demand issue, right? Sure. And mm -hmm. supply didn't catch up until 19. Mm -hmm. So bottom line is the same thing's going to happen, right? There's going to be a lot of construction that will not happen. And we will all benefit two years down the line. So if you can get into this time machine today in a mm -hmm. new construction project, and get off from it 18 to 24 months down the line, you get to skip all of the madness that's going on. Mm -hmm. And you get to basically be at the entry level for the takeoff, the next takeoff. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so that's the big benefit that new construction has. Mm -hmm. And as a result, as a result, certain kinds of new construction assets are not seeing uh, punitive, you know, uh, impounds of the sort that we've seen in multifamily with, you know, principles and interest being impounded for 12 months and all sure. that kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. They're not seeing any of that. I mean, I am able to get construction loans. I have a project in, in Arizona for cheaper than before. And, and, and some of the, when I mean cheap, I mean like no one in history has ever seen rates like this. Right. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, we are seeing banks be extremely cautious with uh, loan to values. And we are seeing them be extremely cautious with first time, second time sponsors. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't done new construction, this is an absolutely horrible, horrible time to get in because you're going to get stuck with lending becoming a massive issue and investors being scared of sure. new construction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you had the, the, the database on the investor side, you had the relationships on the lender side, where you have you know, a track record, this is actually a phenomenal time to be doing new construction. I mean, when in history have you been able to do new construction at four, four and a half percent? So sure. mm -hmm. I think that's the big pro, but the con is, I think that's for a small percentage of people. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people, I think new construction is a really bad idea right now, mm -hmm. and opportunity zones are especially bad. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, I don't want to go into opportunity zones, and I, I, I know, you know, I, I mean, it's such a loaded word, and it's so complicated in terms of, uh, you know, the opportunity is not the word. I mean, it's just a trap, uh, trap zones, as sometimes I like to call it. Uh, but what about some of the risks that come with development, Neil? That you know, we are talking about, you know, land acquisition, entitlements, you know, the entire uh, sort of the rezoning process and things like that, right? So, could you maybe um, uh, share that? How do you kind of control some of these risks? Uh, uh, sort of just the, you know the the typical block and tackle uh, how you play within the construction. I don't. I mean, I am subject to the same problems. We've had cities shut down. You know, we've had a pro pro project in Raleigh, North Carolina that got delayed for two months because the city got shut down. Mm -hmm. the, our project in Mesa got delayed for one month because mm -hmm. the city basically took a month to adjust to working from home. Mm -hmm. And it took him a while to get that infrastructure. There really isn't any blocking and tackling. The truth is that development during a recession is extremely hard. There are no magic bullets to it. Mm -hmm. um, and we cert certainly think that the, the wise men say this, that development is the best thing to do at the takeoff point. Mm -hmm. And I think the takeoff point of this economy is either Q3 of next year or maybe Q1 of 2022. So there's going to be a takeoff point because of that insane amount of money that we injected into the system. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a good time to do new construction. So I would urge people that aren't doing new construction today don't think about it for the next 18 months because the risk that you're taking is significantly higher than the risk that you take with value added assets. Even though those are, you know, there's a painful risk there, but sure. new construction risk might be even higher. Sure, sure. And speaking of pandemic and asset management, uh, Neil, uh, how are how is your group adjusting right now in terms of um, you know all the things that you have to do, and more importantly, from a financial sense, like how are you like tracking different things, uh, you know, as far as the performance and the key KPIs uh, within your assets. Once more, I th I think that we were already doing the right things before the pandemic, right? So we're tracking. You know, we were tracking delinquency, we were tracking uh, notice to vacates, and we were basically taking the necessary steps. I think what people have to really focus on is you have to spend a lot of focus on occupancy and a lot of focus on delinquency and tenant quality 
and you really have to focus on lease ups. Mm -hmm. A lot you know, today, leaving lease up to your property manager is folly. It's foolish. You know, most people haven't done it now are beginning to do it. I mean, some, some people have told me they're doing it because I've started to do it in the last three or four years and I've talked about it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that if, if there's one thing you can do today to help yourself, it is to keep your property leased up because the delinquency is going to hit you no matter what. And, and I, I'm pretty sure the delinquency is going to be bad in September if we don't get another stimulus bill. If you get a stimulus bill, well, you get another two or three months before, you know, it gets bad again. But it's going to be a rocky road. Mm -hmm. So I don't know of any metrics that reduce delinquency. I don't know of any metrics that, you know, increase occupancy. Mm -hmm. I think that right now is a time to be an aggressive, hands-on, pushy pro property manager because all of the other um, owners are pushing the property managers as well. So it's going to be a case of squeaky wheel, right? Sure. Um, this is not a good time to rehab units. People who think that because rents didn't drop in the last three months, they won't drop for the next three months. Don't think that everything moves slowly in real estate. Please read reports. Uh, Marcus Millichap, CBRE, uh, Barcadia, those three are really great. Note that every single one of those reports is forecasting rent declines in the second half of this year, and they're significant. Sure. So, so the first thing is, is you've got to tell your investors we're at the beginning of this, mm -hmm. right? So messaging with investors is absolutely key. Don't think about distributing money, hold it back. You need reserves. Uh, and if you're in a position to actually raise additional equity for your properties, do it. I mean, don't worry about the returns at this point. Your job isn't at this point to provide returns. Mm -hmm. Your job at this point is to protect investor principle, mm -hmm. protect their mm -hmm. capital. So one of the steps that you should be taking is raising additional equity if you can. I see. Good. Thank you, Neil. I appreciate it. Uh, now, you ha are famous, uh, Neil, that your company uh, has an efficiency center, which you know provides a lot of uh, value-add services uh, for your assets. Uh, can you maybe describe, Neil, as far as the specifics, like uh, you know the different activities that your uh, efficiency center is involved in, whether it is uh, you know I guess generating leads, uh, you know creating appointments and marketing and things like that. Yeah, fairly straightforward. It's a call center that does two major activities. They do dozens of other activities, but they do two major activities, which is one is they are very aggressively generating tenant leads. Mm -hmm. They do it through, you know, variety of places, Facebook marketplace. They do it through Zillow. There's, there's, you know, Craigslist. There's lots and lots of different engines that they're sure. using on an ongoing basis to generate leads. And then they process those leads in real time. By real time, I mean, You've got to get, you have to be the first one to call. Mm -hmm. You can't be the second person. You can't be the third person because you're not going to get appointments. So our goal is to call people during work hours, you know, which our call center is open 12 hours a day. So mm -hmm. uh, during those 12 hours, we want to get to people within the first 10 minutes and we incentivize mm -hmm. our team to do that. So you set a lot of appointments and you set them into the property management software so that, you know, the property manager knows when people are coming in. Um, it's very painful. It is low yield in certain cases. And we have certain properties where our yield is fairly low and mm -hmm. other properties our yield is extremely high. Um, mm -hmm. but, but what we can say with a straight face to our investors is we're doing something that nobody else does sure. because we don't actually know of anybody in the U S that has a fully staffed 12 hour a day, six day a week efficiency center. So it's, it's, you know, it's lead generation, it's appointment setting, they do other things as well. Right now they're building a website for one of our projects. So they're very heavily involved. They're doing renderings. They are doing, um, they're building a website uh, um, and, and you know, going back and forth with the designers. Um, they, um, they will create custom audiences. This is actually a project where we're selling uh, townhomes. So it's not a typical project for us. Mm -hmm. So they're reaching out there and building a target list of people that live in Durham that might be interested in buying an asset like ours four months from now when they're complete. So um, those kinds of activities. In the end, what it comes down to this. I mean, you simply ask yourself today, what is the one thing that I can do to create more net profit for my investors? Sure. And then you say, how can the efficiency center address that item? Sure, sure. Thank so you. Really, two questions.
Right. Thank you for thank you for that clarification, Neil. Uh, also, you are expert in you know setting up dashboards and having lots of metrics to kind of you know uh, come to a simplicity and you know boil down uh, you know or rather dumb down the complexity of things. Can you maybe describe some tools and, and uh, favorite uh, sort of metrics you use uh, for setting up the dashboards? Um. The, I, I don't think the metrics are any different. I think it's what you do with them. So a lot sure. of people get caught up in, you know, what are the right metrics? And I, I think that almost every property manager I've ever talked to knows these metrics, sure. right? So you're looking at your delinquency levels, your notice to vacates, you're looking at your, your occupancy levels, you're looking at your, what your leased up percentage is compared to your, your occupancy. Um, those sorts of metrics. I mean, I'm sure there's others that I'm forgetting. Sure. Um, we have a set of metrics that are unusual. This is uh, this is something that we invented in-house. It's called LASIL. Uh, LASIL stands for leads, appointments, shows, applications, and leases. L-A-S-A-L. Mm-hmm. So as far as we know, no one else in the industry tracks LASIL. LASIL is something that um, I learned from a different industry and I bought it into real estate. That I, I find is a, is a very unique metric and is, is massively beneficial compared to any other metric that I've ever seen. Sure. Um, and so I'm constantly surprised that it's not tracked in the industry. People track leases, mm-hmm. but they don't track what takes you to those leases. There are five steps to a lease, sure. right? Initial mm-hmm. lead, appointment, people who show up, people mm-hmm. who sign apps, and people who actually sign the leases. And sure. everyone's tracking just the, 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 the fifth step. Um, the other piece of it is, that when is that you've got to have uh, Goldilocks zones and you've got to have top bottom triggers. And I don't think enough people do that. So people are like, um, I'm tracking my occupancy. Okay, what's your occupancy? Well, it was 92% occupied and now it's at 91. Okay, so what happens if it goes to 90? Well, you know, I'll work with my property manager. Mm-hmm. No, that's not a good answer. You need to have a trigger of something, an event that mm-hmm. happens at that percentage. And it needs to be something that creates a, a, the whole amount of work for your property manager. So they need to know that if they dip to 90%, all kinds of bad shit will happen and they will have to put in a lot of work. I see. And then mm-hmm. you need your property manager to be fair, fearful of that trigger. Mm-hmm. And when they get close to that trigger, they're going to just do anything to avoid that trigger. Right? Sure. Hopefully, they're doing the right things and not just plugging in anybody into the property. Um, and then on the top side, you know, I'm at 96%. Where were you last week? Oh, I was at 95. I'm going to be at 97 next week. So what are you doing? Uh, well, you know, I mean, we, we might raise rents. No, be more specific. How much are you going to raise rents? If you're at 97, how much do you raise rents? If you're at 98, how much do you raise rents? Write mm-hmm. these down, right? Mm-hmm. And tell them to your property manager that if we ever hit this number, this is what you have to do. So what, what, what I find is that people don't take those steps. They're just like, we're monitoring it. What are you getting out of monitoring it? Right. So be, be specific and have all the metrics and numbers associated with all metrics the metrics need lead to actions. Why right. not templatize the actions? Absolutely. You can Absolutely. always make exceptions if you feel that an exception needs to be made. Sure. But I think that every metric on the bottom, top, middle need, needs to lead to temp, templated actions. Sure. And I, I find nobody does that. And it's surprising. Sure. And that's why the out of box and innovative approach that comes to your data science. And <laughs> that's why your group is the way, they, the way you are built. Uh, so Neil, uh, a couple of last questions here. Uh, are there any metrics about, um, you know, let's say you, uh, you have a, uh, let's imagine a 150 unit uh, multifamily. Uh, the, uh, is there any metrics about how many leads that should be generating uh, or is it based on what vacancy it is? Uh, is there any correlation there? I wouldn't say so. I, I, I have failed so far to identify a number of leads for a particular property mm-hmm. because I have B assets and C assets. I have assets in large markets and small markets. What I find is that the number of assets that leads that a property generates is unique to it. There is mm-hmm. no pattern, right? Sure. There is no range. I have a property in Lithonia that generates almost 200 leads a week. And then I have a property which is about 30 miles from there that only generates about 30, right? <laughs> and you might think, oh, so the property that generates 30 leads is worse. No, it's actually better. It's a much nicer property in a much nicer area with schools that get a 10 out of 10. Whereas <laughs> the Lithonia property, the schools are only four out of 10 on the grade schools rating. 
So it's like, this is counterintuitive. And the answer is, yes, it is. Each property has its own individual characteristic of lead flow. Mm -hmm. Your job is to boost that lead flow through your technology measures and through your efficiency centers. And your job is to then, you know, close as many of those leads as possible by building good systems. But um, I don't yeah, I don't think that there's a benchmark for how many leads a property should get. Conversion ratios at my different properties are so radically different from each other mm-hmm. that there, there shouldn't be a benchmark built. Now, once we get into a property within the first three months, we build a benchmark for that property. I see. Right? Mm-hmm. But we don't carry that over from some other property. I see. Got it. Uh, so one last question, Neil. Uh, thank you for your time today. Uh, any specific uh, power habit that you do on a daily basis that perhaps gives you advantage or keeps you disciplined as you're carrying out your daily activities? Yeah, the miracle morning. So, I mean, the miracle morning is a one hour process in the morning where you basically do a number of activities. You do meditation, you do exercise, you're, you're doing scribing, you're doing journaling, but it, you know, and, and um, you're writing down your tasks and looking at them. I think it's, it's phenomenal. It puts you in a completely different uh, space and you're probably going to be two or three times as effective if you follow it. So I tell people the miracle morning is the most powerful book in the world, not because it's the best book in the world. There's lots of books that are better, but it gives you the time to read the other books. Incredible. Thank you for all your insights, Neil. Uh, it's been a power show filled with a lot of your, uh, usual, uh, you know, priceless advice. Uh, Please tell, share with the listeners how they can find you and learn more about uh, all the different things going on around you. <laughs> yeah, well, the easiest way to find me is just to Google me. I am I happen to be the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So just N-E-A-L uh, space Bawa, B-A-W-A, hit enter, and you'll see about 200, 300 listings. You'll see the conferences I'm speaking at, the podcasts that I've done. Uh, you'll also see our websites. Multifamily University is for those that want to learn more about real estate from a data-driven perspective. Sure. And we do webinars there. We do uh, one webinar a week. We have about somewhere around 75,000 people that sign up for these webinars every year. Our typical webinar has uh, between 500 and 1,000 attendees. Um, we also, you know, for people that are interested in investing with uh, a technology-driven group, um, you can go to growcapitus.com. That's G-R-O-C-A-P-I us.com you can again search it by searching for my name and you can see our open projects there we have about 500 investors currently invested in in our projects both value add and new construction incredible thank you and i can share uh, the optimism uh, neil uh, the amount of content and the insights that you have uh, applied to economy real estate and lots of different sectors as well and just the whole process of you know measuring data driven is something i think everyone should adopt and benefit from so thank you for your time today it's been a pleasure uh, i will look forward to another power up uh, podcast sometime in the future again sounds good thanks for having me in sakar thanks thank you thanks for listening to premium cash flow real estate investing podcast please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.